Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The European Medicines Agency is set to meet earlier than expected on the 21st of December and the Government Vaccination Implementation Plan has been published. On Taoiseach, Michael Martin is in studio to discuss how 14 million doses will be rolled out across the country. And from a pandemic to an imminent Brexit trade deadline, how has he handled his first six months in office? Plus, later in the programme, with Europe locking down further, are we in danger of losing ground here and what more can be done to change people's behaviour. Get in touch on Twitter, our hashtag as always, tonight's VMTV. almost 10 months on from the first reported case of coronavirus in Ireland. And today we saw the Cabinet sign off on a vaccine strategy and we're joined in studio by Taoiseach Michal Martin. Taoiseach, thank you for coming in to us. I'm sure a really positive day for you in government, a positive day, I think, for the entire country. But just how big a challenge is this rollout? It's a very significant challenge and I think it's a good day for for Europe and indeed for for Ireland that we're on the cusp now of the vaccine arriving Uh, and I think people need to be patient in terms of how we roll out the vaccine Um, and um, uh, we have a national uh, task force which is coordinating this major logistical effort. To be fair, there's a fair degree of expertise residing in the Department of Health and the Minister for Health um, working with the Health Service Executive, uh, the National Immunisation Office, the Chief Medical Officer and NEFIT a lot of experience there in terms of immunisation and they've been feeding in and they've a lot of work done to date in terms of all of the issues uh, that that we need to get right in terms of rolling out this vaccine. And we have identify... we ever done anything like this before to this extent with this speed? Well, historically, you know, societies have eliminated very dangerous viruses because of vaccines. You know, one thinks of smallpox, uh, one thinks of, of, of polio, for example, and, and TB. Uh, and so this is uh, probably the largest in, 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 in modern times. Uh, but we can do it. And I think if we uh, apply patience and if we all accept the sequencing or the prioritisation, so older people first in nursing homes uh, and healthcare workers, Older people, because we know from the statistics, unfortunately, that older people are most vulnerable uh, to dying from getting this virus or indeed from becoming very ill. And so that's the main criterion, the main uh, reason why we're identifying older people first in nursing homes and residents of healthcare facilities. Uh, And then... When do we expect, if the EMA is going to meet now on Monday, Monday the 21st, when do we expect to see that vaccine here, those older, more vulnerable people in nursing homes, when are they going to get their vaccination, do you think? We could could see actually some vaccine uh, towards the end of the year. 
um, and it'll be lower level, low volumes, uh, but we actually could see that happening. Do we know at what the European, volume is just at yet? The European, sorry? Do we know what the volume is just yet? It depends. Yet? I mean, I know that the uh, President of the European Commission, and I was in touch with, 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 with the President today, is actually uh, working with Pfizer's now. Uh, we had a European Council meeting last week, European Union Council. Some leaders wanted a European sort of uh, coordinated uh, commencement um, day and so forth. So I think across Europe, you will see the vaccine going in similar times to different capitals. But the rollout uh, will increase then in January uh, and February. Other vaccines then may come on stream. Moderna now could come forward again. That's due to be looked at on the 12th of January. Given that Pfizer has come forward, it may come forward. AstraZeneca is due with its vaccine um, in, in January. And then we have three more that Europe has signed up to, and we're members of this consortia that have pre-purchased the vaccine, but they'll come in later months. So in terms of this mass vaccination, Simon Coveney said earlier today that he thought that by the middle of next year it would be available to whoever wanted it. Do you think that's realistic or a little on the optimistic side? Well, no, I think by May, June, you'd have the higher volumes coming through, OK? And I think in many ways you do need to stagger this and stage this in terms of how one vaccinates an entire nation. Um, but uh, certainly by, by August, it'll be open in terms of, of, of open access, but uh, because we'll have far greater plentiful supply of vaccines. But certainly, I would like to think around June, July, uh, we'll have a significant uh, proportion of the, of, of, of the population vaccinated. But I did notice the word you used twice there, patience, patience. Yeah. You need people to, I suppose, stay with you. And are you concerned that people hear this good news, hear about the vaccine, hear it's coming next year, and think, you know, we don't need to be so concerned about COVID-19 anymore? I am concerned about that. On the other hand, I think people have been, have been excellent in Ireland. I mean, generally speaking, people have adhered to the guidelines difficult and all as they have been. I mean, people's lives have been upended. Mm. It's been very, very challenging for people, for families, families particularly who lost loved ones. They couldn't, you know, have the proper ritual, which is so uh, central to our, how we deal with bereavement in Ireland. I often think that's the worst aspect of COVID, um, that we haven't been able to go and share our sympathies with, with, with families of, uh, whose loved ones have been lost in the last year. So that, that's an illustration of how difficult this has been. People have lost jobs. Companies are very worried, have their, you know, have their businesses a future. The vaccine gives us hope. But what's critical is that we maintain our vigilance in terms of our individual behaviour. Behave as if you have the virus and you don't want to give it to the next person. Every contact matters. Wear a mask. Social distancing. Those are still the essentials, and particularly over the Christmas period. Back to the vaccination rollout. We heard 14 million doses are going to have to be administered. Where is the personnel to administer these vaccines? Where are they coming from? Outside of the GPs and pharmacies um, administering them, in the mass vaccination hubs that you're talking about, who is going to be there? Well, in the first instance, um, in, in, in terms of the, the nursing homes, we'll have public health teams. Uh, we, we have GPs who are very experienced in immunisation programmes. Pharmacies will be playing a role. Uh, other medical personnel will be playing a role, and, clin and clinicians and, and, and people in the health service who are qualified um, to do this. And we'll who also are these be other medical we'll all, personnel. We'll also be well advanced nurse practitioners and so on. Many people can can uh, you know give and, and some of the vaccines will be easier to administer than than some. So, for example, the Pfizer one is is, is quite a complex vaccine. Um, the other ones will be easier to administer. So we, we, we have the workforce. We're not overly concerned about that. Um, and, and given that it will be staggered in terms of the arrival of different vaccines at different times. So we're confident and the task force is confident that it can 
um, you know, have, have the workforce in place. Retired personnel can come on stream as well, and retired doctors and healthcare professionals can can help to administer the vaccine. Um, we heard Dr Mary Favier, who I know you'll be familiar with, uh, on the radio today, and she was pleading with the government not to redeploy people from other areas of the health service. And she talked about speech therapists, you know, being brought off their duties to do contact tracing. Yeah. But realistically, are we going to have to see some redeployment? Well, one of the key areas uh, that I've been involved in is, is working with the HSE and with the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, is to make sure that we have an independent, separate workforce for contact tracing and indeed for swabbing as well. And that, that is on track, because uh, I do accept that point. We do want speech and language therapists doing speech and language therapy work. In the first wave of the, of, of the pandemic, it was all hands on deck and people were redeployed. Uh, on this occasion, we don't want to be redeploying uh, therapists and so on to this type of work. Uh, but that said, um, this is a very important uh, programme. Why? Because it will enable us to get society open again. Uh, over time, and it will enable us to reopen our economy. So that seems and to so, suggest to me that it will no, have what, to happen saying, in some some degree. Not we, we'll see, but not, the point I'm trying to make there is not suggesting that, but rather that this is a very important national collective effort from which we will all benefit. So, for example, you take speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, physiotherapy. Some of our disability services are not fully back. The adult mm. daycare service centres are not 100% back because of COVID-19. Many lost a lot of activity, and ma many... Uh, people who used disability daycare centres and, and, and so on, lost out a lot. If we can get a successful rollout of the vaccine programme, it will help us come back to normality much faster. So it is an important national effort that we all have to work towards getting it right and, and getting it rolled out. Um, and also, at the same time, as you have said, maintaining our discipline in terms of our personal behaviour. In terms of the IT system that's going to underpin this rollout, um, when is the contract going to be signed with IBM and when is that system going to be fully functional? Well, the HSE have said they'll have this by the end of the year. They're working uh, overtime with, with, with the companies involved. Um, and what's interesting, they've learned also from the earlier phases of COVID in terms of technology and digitalization of health services. It, it was quite dramatic how they worked with companies in terms of various initiatives uh, that they took uh, in, in terms of, of, of the early phases of COVID. So there, you know, it is challenging, uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's doable. And, you know, they've been in touch with the, the various companies. And do you think it can be done realistically by December 31st? Yes. I mean, that's what the task force are saying to us. That's what the HSE is saying to us. Uh, and it can be done because it's very important uh, that we have proper data uh, collection mm -hmm that we monitor the vaccine because it's not just about administering the vaccine. We've got to monitor it. How is, how, how is it impacting on people? Is it working? Uh, are there side effects? What, what's the, you know, the, and we'll be fully transparent in relation to all of that. And all of that information will be made public in terms of how the vaccine is working and so forth. And how are ordinary people going to access the vaccine? <clears throat> Are they going to have to go online and put in their details and get an appointment? How exactly is that going to There will be vaccination centres in all areas. People will pre-register um, and they will then go to a particular location, uh, depending on what age you are and depending on whether you have, for example, uh, underlying conditions. That will, depend, uh, that will dictate the sequencing in which you'll get the vaccine. So in some instances, you go to your GP. In some instances, you go to maybe a local pharmacy. Uh, initially, hospitals... And who's going to decide that? Um, initially, hospitals will be... Uh, centres as well. Uh, and so we want all frontline healthcare workers to be vaccinated very early on. They're very high up on, on, in, in, in the order of priority in terms of vaccination programmes. Uh, and we have a National Immunisation Advisory Committee that will advise on all of this. 
work with clinicians, uh, and we will communicate this then to the public. But in terms of, I suppose, being able to identify, you know, who has an underlying condition, who doesn't, who needs it at various stages, you know, where, where is that information coming from? Who's deciding that? Oh, well, I mean, a lot of a lot of people have that information already, uh, and I think that's not that's not necessarily a difficult um, task. Uh, so, you know, if you're a diabetic or if you have various respiratory conditions and so forth, I mean, you will present with those, you'll give that information uh, to those who are administering the vaccine. And particularly if you're, many people will be working through their GP laterally uh, as we get into the, the higher volumes of the vaccine coming on stream. And your GP will discuss this with you. And we're encouraging people to talk with their GPs in terms of the vaccine, if they have any doubts, if they have any worries, you know, talk to your uh, GP. Uh, that's the first port of call in terms of getting yeah. advice and in relation to it. Actually, that was going to be my next question because I'm sure one of the big concerns is vaccine hesitancy. First of all, do you, know, do you appreciate and understand where people's concerns come from, given the speed with which this has been introduced? Yes, I do, uh, uh, of course. And um, I think we have to be open about that. We have to be transparent and provide the maximum degree of information possible to people. Do you have any concerns uh, will, yourself? Personally, no, um, because I think what has happened here, first of all, is that... It's, it's unique in that governments have come together through the European Union. The United States has done its thing. It's come together with pharmaceutical companies to face a major one in a hundred year event, a, a pandemic. And therefore, the regulatory authorities then started from day one with the companies and were monitoring the clinical trials along the way and monitoring all the data that was supplied to them by the companies. So they were in a position uh, to do things much faster than they ordinarily would be. I remember being Minister of Health during SARS. There was no hint of any such cooperation that time. And, and, and that time, governments were at the mercy of pharmaceutical companies. You'd be paying the highest dollar for the highest, you know, uh, for, for shortages, of, uh, sorry, for scarce uh, vaccines. Now there's a system in place, which I think is a great testament to European Union and to the European Commission, that they've been in a position to coordinate this and work with the companies so that we can get the vaccines much faster. Would you consider taking the vaccine publicly, for example? I have no issue with that at all, but I want to do it in line. Uh, in You're not going to jump the queue on I'm us. I'm not going to jump the queue, and I don't think that would be right, or I don't think that would be setting the right example, but I will be getting the vaccine. Um, how are we going to try and, I suppose, deal with those who are worried or sceptical about the vaccine? I read at the, in the papers at the weekend that the government was going to consider engaging trusted experts, was a phrase I read. You know, people, I suppose, who are well-known to the public, who are going to go out there and sell the message. Is that what you're thinking? Well, I think the... the in most people's lives, you know, who do we go to if we have a problem? We go to our GP uh, and we take advice from our GP. Uh, so we will be relying on public health specialists and more generally to communicate to people all the information about the vaccines, each individual vaccine. Mm. Uh, any questions, that, you know, we'll provide as much information as we possibly can, as comprehensively as we can to people. Um, and then uh, people then can seek advice as well. Uh, and so there will be a very strong communications programme. Will there be um, a specific communication programme for younger people, seeing as, you know, there was some difficulty at the beginning of COVID-19 getting the message across to younger people because it was felt that, you know, more traditional routes were being yeah, used yeah. as opposed to getting to them on TikTok or speaking to influencers or kind of speaking to younger people on their level. Will it be considered this time? Yes, and in fact, that is happening now with the uh, current COVID-19 communications. You know, we're on all the TikTok and, and, and various apps and platforms and so on. Uh, and we are targeting the 18 to 24 year and will you age engage cohort. influencers and the same, again? The same will happen in relation, we will, and the same will happen in relation to um, the vaccine. But the most important influencers in this context, I would say, um, are the, the doctors and the healthcare personnel and those who know a lot about immunisation. And as I've said, 
you know, we need to look to history and, 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 and the great revolution in modern medicine was the introduction of vaccines. Um, and they dealt with a lot of infectious, infectious diseases down, down through the decades. And uh, that's why I have confidence uh, overall in, in the vaccine approach. And, and that we do need, because this is a population issue, it's not an individual issue. Uh, this, this is killing people. It's causing lasting damage to people's health. And that's why at a population level, we need to really, I think, encourage as many people as possible to take the vaccine. Um, we've heard the CMO only this week come out and ask people again, please postpone travel at Christmas. Do not come into or leave the country. Do you agree with that message? Yeah, but I think that we, we have to avoid non-essential travel. And I think when you see what's happening around the world, many red zones now, you can see in, uh, Holland is closing down a week before Christmas. Germany is closing down a week before Christmas. London back in level three uh, tomorrow. London's back at a level three. So what I is was, the government's come, message to those people? I've just come people. from Europe and it was a bit of an odd meeting for me because all the European ministers were talking about uh, restrictions and lockdowns and we were in a situation where we'd opened up somewhat because we had been in a severe lockdown for six weeks, uh, which we have to acknowledge. But that did result in us getting in there early, earlier than most, getting incidents to the lowest level in Europe. The challenge now is to keep mm. it there. Uh, we have opened up, we've given you know, people opportunities in terms of their livelihoods and in terms of businesses having some chance for the future, because these are an important three weeks. But personal behaviour is essential, and particularly during the Christmas time. And if you want to meet loved ones during Christmas, your parents and your grandparents, it's very, very important that you behave accordingly so that you can do that. Um, you're going to ease the restrictions, I take it, on Friday as planned. Yes. And will they continue, notwithstanding what happens to the numbers, until January 6th? Until early January, we will we'll keep an eye on this. Government will meet on, on, the, on, the, on the 29th of December. Um, so we'll be keeping a very close eye on the numbers. So that January 6th um, date could be pulled back? Well, we're going to keep an eye on it. I mean, we're, not, we're, we're going to keep an eye on it, is what I'm saying. But we will also take cognizance of all the data that's out there. We'll watch where the clusters are uh, and what is happening out there. And um, Just very briefly, I think people will want to know, watching tonight, when is life going to get back? To normal, and I know it's a sixty-four million dollar question, but they're thinking, you know, will I be able to go on summer holiday next year and go abroad? I Do you think, think that's going to happen. I think this is going to happen gradually, and I think towards the latter half of two thousand and twenty-one, things will be coming back closer to normality. Uh, and I think, you know, over time, but I do certainly see that. And I actually think, you know, I'm being cautious in what I'm saying. Vaccine production could ramp up. We might get the vaccines earlier in, in, in large volumes. Uh, other vaccines will come on stream. Um, so I think we'll be in a much, much better place uh, next year than we have been all of this year. Okay, that, I want... that, of that, I'm certain. And also, even if you start taking, thinking we got all the nursing homes yeah. done in terms of vaccines, all the healthcare frontline workers, even that alone in January, February makes life much easier um, for us. Okay, uh, I want to uh, move on, I suppose, past yeah. COVID-19 uh, and look at the Leaving Cert next year because Simon Harris seemed to indicate quite strongly earlier this week that there will be a Leaving Cert through traditional Leaving Cert. Is that what you're thinking? Yes, I mean, I've said this repeatedly. Norma Foley, as Minister, and, and Simon were very clear, uh, just as I was when I became Taoiseach, that I wanted the schools to reopen. Education is a passion of mine. I didn't want children to become victims of this virus. And if they lost out on their learning, they would become, you know, long-term victims mm -hmm. because we know that if children lose education too long, they're in trouble. Uh, so we want the exams to happen as well. Uh, in, the, in the normal way. Uh, and, in and work is this, already on the way in relation to that. In terms of the school in, in Clare Morris, um, and we know that it closed because it had yeah. such concerns about the number of pupils there with COVID-19 in the Department of Education, yeah. then ordered it to reopen. But we see this sort of farcical situation this week. The school is reopened, and I think there's less than 10 children attending it. Could that have been handled 
better. Maybe it could, and uh, lessons will have to be learned from that. I don't know the exact detail of it. I do accept that principals and, and, and boards of management are under a lot of pressure. This is challenging. I think across the country they've risen magnificently to the challenge. Mm. Uh, and I think it's great that we're coming to the end of the first term. And, and they've got through this. In fairness to Norma Foley, I think she's done an excellent job as Minister for Education, secured huge resources. But this particular to, to school, this I suppose, um, the principals like come out that like we feel say, undermined. I would say to the principal, you know, stick with it. Uh, I hear what he's, uh, his anxiety and his stress and his concern. Uh, and I don't think any, I, I think overall nationally people want a kind of consistent approach across the country. But I do understand fully that people can, are in a difficult position when situations like that develop. And also, you know, from an education perspective, sometimes the public health perspective, you know, there needs to be a closer connection there. That did happen after uh, Halloween. Uh, and again, we're learning all of the time. Uh, and that's something that uh, we will learn for the next term. All right, moving on now to Brexit. Um, you said only last week, look, it was a bit pessimistic, 50-50 chance of a deal. That's what you said. Have those odds changed? Are you more positive now? I'm afraid to say I am. No, but, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I'll put it this way to you. I think the fact that they're negotiating and they're talking is a good sign and a hopeful sign. I don't underestimate the, the challenges um, facing um, the negotiators uh, on this level playing field issue. Do you think it's on, going to go right up to the 31st and on of fisheries. December? I would like, hopefully, by the weekend that we might have clarity around mm. this. Uh, and um, certainly, you know, it, it's important uh, that we, we do get some clarity uh, so that we can then uh, get, the, get, get any deal that might come over the line um, ratified. I think it's extremely important that we get a deal. I think a no deal would be uh, very bad news for Ireland, very bad news for the United Kingdom and for European member states. We, we're interdependent as economies. We export hugely to the UK. They export hugely to Ireland. We're their mm. fifth largest market. They need to be selling goods into Ireland free of tariffs and they free of quotas. They need us too. In we terms of um, Brexit, I suppose, pushing you know, United Ireland further up the agenda, we had uh, Mary Lou MacDonald uh, saying a couple of days ago to an English newspaper, a united Ireland will happen within the decade. And Fianna Fáil, specifically, she identified Fianna Fáil, is burying its head in the sand when it comes yeah, to this I, I issue. I think, you know, I've, I've talked to Mary Lou about this before. Her attitude is very divisive, very partisan. Uh, Brexit isn't about uh, united Ireland or forcing people into united Ireland next year or having some border poll that that's what Sinn Féin wanted and, and, and raise tensions and create tensions. The first priority was to get Brexit sorted for the North, for the South, for the island in its entirety and also in terms of the relationship between Britain and Ireland. And I've worked hard on this, and I didn't do any knee-jerk reactions like Mary Lou did on some occasions during this journey. Uh, and I made it clear that I want to try and maintain the British-Irish relationship as intact as we possibly can. Why? To underpin peace on the island, because the British-Irish relationship is so important. As so you learned. don't think there's going to be a border um, poll in the next decade? You think the, I don't likely? think there'll be one in the next five years. I've, I've developed a shared island mm. uh, unit in my department and, and a very important shared island initiative, which the Irish News has described as perhaps the most important development in, 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 the, in the Northern Ireland context in well over a decade. We've allocated 500 million euros. I want to be practical. I want to get things done north-south. You know, the, in, in, in and from Donegal in terms of uh, Letterkenny, uh, the campus in McGee, for example. Mm. We can do work there, the Enniskill and Slig yeah. Sligo we know how important uh, Greenway, uh, the, the, the A5, um, the Ulster Canal. These are projects I want to see happen. Before uh, a border poll. And this government will get this done. And okay. behind so, the scenes, Sinn Féin know that I'm on the right track with the shared island. Uh, they won't accept it for political reasons because they keep beating the drum. And Look, beating the drum isn't 
uh, in my views, uh, the proper approach to dealing with the complexities of the issues on the island. Um, speaking of dealing with you know, complex issues and polls, your own party, Fianna Fáil, um, despite everything that you know, potentially your party is going to have achieved in terms of you know, getting the vaccine rolled out and maybe getting a Brexit deal done, polled really poorly recently, 12% in the poll, you know, Sinn Féin up there in the 30s, Fine Gael up there in the 30s. And I know you've said, look, I don't pay much heed to opinion polls and short-termism, but you must be a little bit concerned about that. Why well, do actually, you think that's happened? Actually, that's an online poll. It's, we've had very few polls barred over Red Sea online poll, which we'd have some issues with the methodology of that. But park that for a moment. I can recall before the last general election, you know, there were people at 30-odd percent, didn't get 30-odd percent uh, in, in the general subsequently. Uh, you're right, I don't bother about polls. We're the largest political party in Dáil Irvin. We're the largest party in local government. Uh, we're the largest party in the Shannon. 74 Some of your backbenchers, no, no. I'm just conscious of time yeah, here, um, yeah. Taoiseach, some of your backbenchers have sat here and said, notwithstanding all that, we're going to be slaughtered next time yeah, That's silly talk, that's not going to happen. That's, that's your own backbenchers, I know, though. but I'll be talk, you know, I have my views and I'll talk to them as well. I understand why they're saying these things, but I, I've been through this. You know, I've been there and I've come out the other end election after election. Uh, and people need to have more self-confidence, much more self-confidence. Fianna Fáil ministers, Norma Foley, Michael McGrath are doing very well. Dara O'Brien in housing, uh, Stephen Donnelly in health. I mean, in health, we've made great inroads already. But are you going uh, to try and develop a strategy and so next year in China, you know, Logan Agriculture? to look right? at some of the major leaks coming from your party during your parliamentary party meetings, which are pretty damaging, I have to say. Modern, are you going to try and tackle the social media element? Modern politics is full of leaking. Um, it's um, it, it <laughs> just it's a, it's a it's a condition of the modern era uh, in politics, and I've become resigned um, to that reality. Uh, and um, unfortunately, because I think it does, many new deputies find it it restricts their freedom to speak out because they feel if I speak out or say what I want to say, it's going to be on Twitter within five minutes. Uh, you know, and journalists will have to seek. News, that's their job too, and they have to have their sources, and they have plenty of them. Plenty in, of them in your party. In, plenty in my party, and plenty in other parties as well. All right. Bar Sinn Fein, maybe, because Sinn Fein isn't to control mechanisms that don't apply to other parties. I don't mean that, but that's just the reality. All right. Look, we're going to have to leave it there, but I, I appreciate you coming in to us uh, this evening, and happy Christmas. Many happy returns. Thank you, Tishak. Now, after the break, how will the vaccine rollout plan work for those GPs and pharmacists, and what are the potential pitfalls? We're going to be hearing from an Irish public health consultant working through the pandemic in Australia. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG.
Welcome back. Joining us now on Skype is Dr Nile Conroy, Irish consultant in public health medicine, working in Queensland, Australia. Nile, I know you've just woken up to Ireland's vaccination plan. On first glimpse, what do you think? Yeah, it's, um, it, it actually looks like a, a reasonable piece of work. Um, you know, vaccination plans, there's a lot of stuff within them that's fairly consistent throughout different plans and you know the sort of this plan has a bit of nuance around sort of refrigeration and that kind of thing but actually it looks like um, it's fairly consistent with what you're seeing in other countries and to be honest with you I would expect most high-income countries to do reasonably well in terms of their the logistics around this I suppose where you know there, there might be a little space to, to have a rethink is around um, there's a communication section and a human resources section within the implementation plan. And I suppose um, they're not particularly well defined yet. The plan hasn't really nailed down who's going to do all this work. And the communications plan is still one of these um, pretty standard government health communication plans, which are, you know, which tends to involve, you know, hse.ie websites, gov.ie websites, doctors making explainer videos. And I think, you know, when you talk to people, people have um, lots of questions about, about this vaccine. And they're the same questions in Australia and Ireland, I would imagine. Um, and they probably, they're all questions that have nice answers and good stories to, to explain away people's concerns. But um, you probably, you know, I would have liked to see maybe a more innovative um, communication strategy embedded within it, you know, using everything from the, you know, the evening news to Twitter and TikTok, you know. So I, I think there's, there's a few pieces like that um, need and to be need to be ironed out. But the, the logistics looks what you would expect. Well, on that, I suppose, communication side, one of the real important things is trying to reassure those who have vaccine hesitancy, who are concerned about the speed with which this vaccine has been produced. So how would you address that? Yeah, and that's really important. And I think some of these plans focus a lot on the refrigerators and the lorries and the couriers and the GPS when in reality your components of a, a vaccine programme are the manufacture, the delivery to the people, and then persuading people to roll up their sleeve and getting vaccinated. And I think there's, there's been um, communication around this stuff in the pandemic has been a bit of a lost art. We have really good people who, who can answer those type of questions. And, you know, but, but there's been a real... Um, the governments around the world have really wanted to control the messaging right from the start. And I think we need to use our communications people to think about some of these, just these recurring themes about, like you said, how quickly this has all happened, the, the amount of time we, we have to follow up side effects, questions like that are recurring. And I think making, making a communication strategy around some of these questions, but that are targeted to lots of different parts of the population, the messaging and the explanation will be different for 80 and 90 year olds than it will be for teenagers and 20 year olds. So I think we need a, a dedicated comms team who are sort of let off the leash. You know, if we, if we look back at pandemics in the past, people still remember the ad campaigns um, from when, when AIDS first came out in the 1980s. People still talk about those ad campaigns. We won't look back on this pandemic and really see a lot of examples of really good communication that, that you'll still remember in decades. 
And one of the other challenges, I think, is just being able to get your hands as a country on uh, the vaccine because there's so much demand around the world. How difficult is it for those pharmaceutical companies to ramp up production? How fast can that be done? Yeah, I mean, that's almost the big unknown. You know, I suppose when you look at the, the companies that have produced their data so far, um, Pfizer and AstraZeneca um, and Moderna, they're probably between them talking about enough vaccine by the end of 2021 for about three or four billion people. Um, you know, Ireland has, has ordered enough to vaccinate the population several times over, but those vaccines as at the moment mostly just exist on paper so it's going to be it's going to be very difficult um to, to, to be able to predict when ireland will get its its allocated proportion because you know vaccine production is slow um but i have to say it's slow but i mean this is this is um production at a speed that we've never seen before and really what it really what it feeds into is people asking when will life return to normal and i suppose that's the the big unknown at the moment, isn't it? And and that's, you know, that's really what people want to know. The $64 million question. Uh, Dr. Niall Conroy, thank you for getting out of bed early for us. And thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. You're very welcome. And we're joined now in studio by Social Democrat co-leader Roisin Shorthall and pharmacist Kate O'Connell. You're both very welcome to the programme. Kate, I know you've had a chance to look at the plan. Are you as a pharmacist clear when you're going to be called up? Well, we're not clear yet, but we know we'll be part of it. And I'm delighted to see that. I'm delighted to see GPs involved as well. Um, I think key to this is the trust that has been built up um, in the community with public health teams, with GPs over the years and in recent decades with community pharmacists. So I don't think um, this many doses could be delivered um, without the involvement of GPs and pharmacists. What I would like to see now is, I suppose, an analysis of what capacity there is there at the minute to mobilise people out of retirement, perhaps pharmacists and GPs, before it actually happens in their premises that some of us may volunteer to go to mass vaccination centres and also the training piece about making sure that if we have all these vaccines booked and ordered, that we have the personnel to deliver them, but that they're delivered in a safe way, um, in a confident way. And um, as Dr Conroy said, there's, this, there's a, a huge piece here you can have all the logistical plans, you can have all the fridges you want, you can have all the personnel lined up, but if people don't want the vaccine, it's all for nothing. So that education piece is really key here. And I do think pharmacists and GPs have a huge role in the community in addressing those concerns in advance of the mass vaccination programme. And the Taoiseach seemed to suggest that. I'm just wondering, uh, Roshi Tordell, do you think the Taoiseach was clear about who is going to be involved in this rollout? Well, I think it's clear that pharmacists and GPs must be involved. And I'd agree with the points Kate makes there about possibly bringing back retired people because it is a, a huge undertaking and it's a huge logistical operation as well. And we do need all hands on deck um, to get the, the virus or sorry, to get the vaccine um, administered in as short a time as possible. Um, but there are undoubtedly unanswered questions about it. Um, it's it was great to see the launch today and I think that's given people terrific hope. Um, but there are huge issues there about communications, as Dr Conroy said, and 
doing that piece of persuasion with people. Mm. And I think it's really important that it's people with medical expertise who do that rather than politicians. Uh, we know um, Brian McGrath is coming in front of the Health Committee tomorrow. He's overseen, I suppose, the rollout of this um, vaccine. You're going to be there. What yes. specifically are you going to be asking him? For clarification on. Well, I think there is a, a big question about the IT system that's un going to underpin the rollout of the vaccine. It's not ready at the moment and it won't be ready for some time. So there's going to be a temporary system in put in place until such time as the proper one, the longer term one, uh, is ready. Which and the Taoiseach said in that interview, would be ready by the 31st of December? Well, I'm not sure about that. Now, he obviously has access to further information, but my understanding from today's launch and the questions that were asked is that the, the actual contract hasn't been awarded yet. The company has been selected, IBM, but there's still negotiations on the actual contract. So it's not expected that, that the IBM contract will be in place and the system will be in place before the end of the year. There will be a temporary one. And it's obviously critical that the temporary one can feed in to the longer term permanent one. So that's one, one question. But arising out of that then, how do we, you know, identify different patients? I think there's big questions there. We don't have a fully developed uh, unique patient identifier at the moment. That's yeah. been promised for some time. Just that I've heard that. More work. I've heard that <laughs> phrase used a lot today, and I think a lot of people at home will be thinking, uh, uh, "What exactly?" Okay, so a way of identifying each patient. Mm. So we know from the plan that there are different kind of groups of patients. Obviously, starting with high risk uh, patients, people over 65 in long term care. Uh, and it goes down, down through different groups of people, including people obviously with serious underlying health conditions and different categories of workers and so on. But identifying those people will be an issue because as of now, it is a self-registration system. So that's great in people who are aware and people who, you know, are committed to kind of looking after their own health will register presumably themselves. But there'll be a lot of people who won't be reached that way. So how are we going to identify people who don't come forward themselves. So lots of questions like that which remain to be answered. And Kate, I want to ask yeah. you about that because uh, as Rushi was saying, we don't have that type of data, you know, about every single person in, their, in the country and what their health is like and what underlying conditions. We don't have that digitally in this country yet. We don't have these unique patient identifiers. Um, would you have concerns about this self-registration system? I would, I would. Work? But I mean, it, it, it has to be part of it because obviously able people who have the capacity to register themselves, that's obviously the easiest way. But we would find in the community farmers, I'm sure GPs find it as well, that obviously there's liter literacy issues. There's people who just, just won't know how to do that and they will need to be brought along. Mm. But also, we saw it at the start of the flu vaccine, you know, the most organised versus the most at risk sometimes, you know, we're, we're front of the piles. We have to make sure that things are fair. But like that, GPs and pharmacists have our list of uh, patients with diabetes. There's a chronic disease management programme through the, um, GPs. So they will know um, who their, 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 their obese patients or their most at risk patients are. And obviously community pharmacists as well will have an, an idea. So we do that on a small scale with the flu vaccine. But this is going to require, as Roisin said, a huge logistical operation. But actually what's going to be, I think, the most difficult part once we get over the handling issues and the administration issues is the idea that the second shot, that is really where it's going to be key. That if, for example, there's an IT glitch and we're on day 20 and there's shots due on day 21, how the human resources are deployed to get the actual people in. So they're the sorts of things. And if you ask any practice nurse or dispensary manager that has operated a flu vaccine programme, 
um, there are complexities. Uh, people tend to be unpredictable. People have things going on in their lives. Um, and it's always like eradicating any um, disease or sending out any treatment program. It's always the first people that are easiest to get to, but we have to be very conscious that this is a herd immunity principle and we need to get to 70-80% to try and uh, protect those that can't have the vaccine. All right, we're going to leave it there for now. But Roisin Shortle and Kate O'Connell are staying with us. And after the break, we're going to be joined by behavioural economist Pete Lunn and asking whether people's behaviour is changing with news of the vaccine rollout. Very welcome back. Social Democrat co-leader Roisin Shortall and pharmacist Kate O'Connell are still with us and we're also joined on Skype by behavioural economist uh, Pete Lunn. I just want to come back to you, um, Kate, because we know numbers are on the rise um, and we see that the incidence rate has now gone up by about 10% over a five-day period. What are you seeing in the pharmacy? Do you see evidence that, you know, People are back out and about and ah, the numbers yes. are increasing. Ah, yes. The minute the, the restrictions lifted, obviously, sales of lashes went up, sales of tan went up. And then, obviously, you have the, the winter illnesses coming in, which perhaps are masking COVID symptoms. And, obviously, we have, quite unfortunately, lost a number of people this week in the area to COVID. So we actually see the real effects of it. Um, and also what I'd be concerned about over Christmas is... There's often this idea that you power through Christmas. So an awful lot of people, you know, oh, I'll get it done now. And you see a, a, a burden of illness on the 26, 27, 28 in ordinary years. So I just will be concerned about the powering ahead this year and if it's masking COVID and then obviously going into other households and that. So I think really um, the message has to be gotten out there that we're in no different of place than we were last March. It's the same people we are protecting, minus those that have unfortunately lost their lives. So and you'd be concerned that people will have symptoms, you know, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, St Stephen's Day, and maybe just won't really do anything about them well, because see, they're concerned about the outcome? You, do you see, if, if, if someone considers at this point in the year, if they go for a COVID test, or their family does... That means their, their groceries have to be delivered. That means those last few things that they were going to buy. And you can understand it's only human nature why someone would want to avoid a test. But people have to be brought together in the sense that if you don't identify that you have COVID, that you possibly could spread it to the vulnerable in your families. And with the figures we're seeing today, it's not looking good. So it's going to transfer to larger figures. It's really now up to each individual to protect their own families in the circumstances. Um, are you concerned, as Professor, I think Anthony Stain said today, a third wave in January? It's mm -hmm. inevitable. Is the government planning for it? Well, I don't think they are. And we were talking earlier about the importance of communication with the, the vaccine. And it's fantastic news about the vaccine. But the real danger is that we let our guard down thinking, you know, this, we're, we've come through the worst of it and we haven't. The reality is that for most people, it'll be well into next year before they get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need to get those levels right up. So we're probably talking about sometime next summer by the time we start coming out of this tunnel. And in the meantime, we all have to keep up our guard and the messages need to be very clear because we all get tired of this and especially at Christmas time now. And, you know, there'll be a lot of people indoors and mixing and all of that. And we do need to keep the messages going. 
going. I just and, want and, to and that it's really important that we all take responsibility for that ourselves. Yeah. I think the vast majority of people are doing that all right, but there are others who think that this is just a license, you know, to, to live normally. Yeah. And unfortunately, we can't afford to do that. Well, let me put that um, to Pete Lunn. I know, Pete, you're at home. You are restricting your movements, trying to cut down your contacts ahead of Christmas. Do you agree with Roisin Shortall that most people are doing that or have we let standards slip a little? Well, we can see there was something of a fall off in compliance with the government guidelines throughout November, actually, prior to December. And it stayed at a somewhat lower level. It's mostly younger people. And I don't mean very young people. I mean young adults under the age of 35 or 40 or so who've actually begun to socialise more and have pushed the boundaries of the restrictions a little more over the last month or so. We can see that. However, actually, there was fresh data out today that suggested that people are kind of pulling back a little bit. Um, it looks actually now like a, a slightly higher number of people are saying, look, they're restricting going out. They're not going out as much as they were. And that may be people actually preparing because they know they're going to see family members over Christmas, some of whom may be older, and therefore they might want to just rein back how much they're socializing. So there's a little bit of evidence there. But in general, compliance with the guidance has slipped somewhat over the last month or so. Do you think um, the rollout of the vaccine today and this you know, news that people are going to see the vaccine in this country, potentially even by the end of the year, will encourage people to relax their behaviour? Uh, no, I, I, I can't see any evidence that necessarily suggests in the data actually the news about the vaccine has had an impact. I mean, in fact, that decline in compliance with the restrictions was happening already prior to that, to some extent. Having increased, incidentally, compliance had increased as the second wave started, but it was almost as if we got on top of the numbers a little bit too quickly second time around and people relaxed their guard too soon, which is one of the reasons I think that we haven't managed to push them back down below the kind of three figures sort of levels. In truth, we really don't know what the psychological impact of the vaccine is going to be yet. We can't really see its impact in the data as of now. It could go either way. I mean, the fact that people can see light at the end of the tunnel may mean they're more willing to knuckle down and try and make sure they really don't get this disease or get it into their family before, hopefully, the vaccine comes along and makes infection far less likely. Or alternatively, as you say, it may be that it causes people to relax. As a behavioural scientist, you could argue that either way on existing evidence, and we haven't got enough data yet to be sure. But you've always said, Pete, that the public are actually more conservative when it comes to restrictions than the government has been. Uh, yes, and that continues to be the case. So um, when the uh, restrictions were announced for Christmas and the plan for Christmas was announced, we fed evidence into NEFID at the time uh, based on multiple data sources that showed actually that, yes, people did want some exception made for Christmas, but on average, the public didn't want it to be as lax as it is now. They actually wanted the pubs and restaurants and the shops to open later in December, not near the start of December. I stress on average, there was a very substantial minority that were very supportive of what the government did. Um, you know, and there's no guarantee that the majority are getting this right in any sense. But if you just look at those public opinion surveys, that's what they told you, that if anything, the public wanted more caution. And that has been true throughout the pandemic, as you rightly say, or at least since around kind of May, June time, the public has felt that we opened up a little too quickly, and I stress, on average, it's not everybody, but on average, that's what's felt, yeah. And speaking of caution, for those who have, you know, worries and concerns about this vaccine, how do we bring them on board? What should the government's communication strategy be? Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, I think that's unclear at the moment. The situation is evolving very quickly, including the news about um, the vaccine and the trials and more data is coming available and more will come available towards the end of the month and into January. We've actually got a research um, program going into the field right now where we're trying to really unpack exactly what people's worries are and what, what kind of information they need in order to become more reassured. We know that about two thirds of the country is happy to take the vaccine or says that they are. So there's a job there to get them actually to turn that intention into action. But of the remainder of the third who have their doubts or are unsure, more of whom are women than men, uh, the large majority are to play for, the large majority are undecided and are waiting essentially to see more information and to see how the situation evolves. The number who actually are saying, no, I'm definitely not gonna take this is really quite small. All so right. we need to research that better. We need to understand what those feelings are. We need to provide people with honest and transparent information and tell the stories of these trials and how these vaccines have been developed so that people okay. have all of that in front of them and they can make an informed decision. And all I right. think most people when they see that will actually see that the science itself has not been hurried up. What's actually been hurried up is the regulatory process okay. and the science behind these vaccines is very good. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, my thanks to Pete Lund, to Roshan Shortall and to Kate O'Connell. In the big interview on Thursday night at 9pm here on Virgin Media One, traveller and Senator Eileen Flynn is going to be talking to me about her journey from growing up on a halting site and the loss of her mother as a child to becoming a traveller rights activist and the first traveller ever to be appointed to the Shannet. But for now, stay safe. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.